Our Old Testament reading comes this morning from the book of Ecclesiastes. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. This is the word of the Lord. I'm glad you said thank you to God for that, because is it something we should be thankful for? It's kind of a heavy message. Uh, This is one of the books that is Ecclesiastes that preachers put on their top ten list of books I'm never going to preach. So I'm either being your courageous leader or I'm a bit foolhardy, and it's left to you to decide at the end of our series. But we're going to look at this uh, under the lens of dark grace that there's something that Ecclesiastes gives us that we actually need to hear, and we need to hear it over and over. So we're going to spend about seven weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes, and as we start our study, would you pray with me and maybe for me? Father, there's a lot of challenging things in this passage and in this book, and so I pray not only for this morning, but for all of those who come back next week and the week after, that this uh, would not be just a hard slog through uh, ultimately disappointing um, ends, but that you would give us grace, that you would give us the light of the gospel, that you would help us to see our lives in light of eternity, our lives in light of heaven, our lives in light of what Jesus has done. And so, Father, we pray that you would guide us. I pray that you would guide me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Disney is known for making um, movies with a happy ending. And whatever terrible happens to the characters during the movie, it's always made up for by the ending where the character gets life to the full, they 
find the person of their dreams, they accomplish their dreams, they follow their heart, etc. That's every Disney movie just about, except for Lion King. A friend of us, friend of ours took us to see the Broadway version a few years ago at the Keller, and it was amazing. It was beautiful. It was stunning and also depressing, so depressing. Mufasa is the, the king, and he explains to Simba, his son, the main message of the play or the film, and he explains the circle of life, why it's okay to eat the antelope. Because when our bodies die, Simba, we eat the antelope. I'm sorry, it's okay to eat the antelope because when our bodies die, Simba, we become the grass and the antelope eat the grass. This is the great circle of life. That's depressing. That's not a happy ending. Even with Phil Collins' music playing alongside, it's not happy. Ecclesiastes is teaching us about the circle of life. And let me summarize the entire book. At the end of the day, life is frustratingly absurd. The cycles of nature are screaming that message to us over and over. You were born, you exert a lot of energy, but nothing new happens, and then you die. And one other thing, after you die, you'll be quickly forgotten. Happy New Year, everyone. Well, most of you are going to really like this book. When we peel back its layers, those of you who are acquainted with grief particularly, those of you who have been around this planet enough to have taken your lumps from life or going to uh, see that it validates not only your experience but your feelings about your experience. Some of you won't like it, <laughs> and I hope it's few of you, but some of you, uh, because looking at life for any of us, undiluted is very scary. And so often we come in here and we want a really uplifting, heartwarming, heartwarming message, something comforting. And I think Ecclesiastes actually offers us comfort, but it's cold comfort. And we need to look through Ecclesiastes to the rest of Scripture to see that. But don't despair because we're only going to be in this for seven weeks. Just like you don't want to stay on antibiotics for very long, you don't want to stay on Ecclesiastes very long. You need to let it help make sense of our experience and need to let it inoculate us against superficial solutions to life's difficulties, but then move on before we grow cynical and depressed. So what is Ecclesiastes as a book? The structure is a, a framed narrative. You have it beginning and ending, opening with this third-person narrator that's telling the story of Kohelet, of the teacher or the preacher. And it's not a proper name, but it's a designation. It's a teacher with kingly authority, and we're never actually told who he is. The author has been traditionally ascribed to uh, the authorship as being Solomon, but it's most likely not Solomon. He says in verse 16, Look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. And then he says he's a son of David. And so it's been traditionally ascribed that, well, Solomon is David's son and he ruled in, in Jerusalem. So it's got to be Solomon. But the thing is, he seems to be talking about a lot of kings that he supersedes in wisdom. And there are only two kings who ruled an undivided Israel from Jerusalem, David and then Solomon. And most scholars date the book because of the Hebrew and because of a number of other things, not to 1000 BC, which is roughly when Solomon would have ruled, but many, many centuries later, perhaps one of the later books in the Bible. And it's written by someone who is saying, like a king, 
He has all of the resources of time and wealth and leisure that he can spend time seeking out the wisdom that he needs. He can spend time and money, any expense, to figure out what life is all about. He's a sort of super Solomon, and here's what he finds. We're going to look at three words and then one hopeful conclusion. Three challenging words. first one is meaningless. We get a summary of his quest, the teacher, the preacher, for wisdom right at the beginning. Verse 2, meaningless, meaningless. And I won't repeat it to you again. You get the point. This word appears 38 times in Ecclesiastes. And unfortunately, it's one of the most disputed uh, words in the entire book. Meaningless has been translated as our translation, the NIV has it. It's been translated futility or most famously vanity. Not vanity as in narcissism, but vanity as in vain, no purpose. But I'm persuaded by uh, Robert Alter, who is a Hebrew scholar, probably the most preeminent Hebrew scholar in the West, at least, who writes at Berkeley. And he says these words are all partially right. They all get to some part of what the teacher is telling us. But the Hebrew word able means something utterly insubstantial, something transient, like vapor. Cain's brother Abel, incidentally, is named after this term, that Abel lived the merest breath of a life. He was like a vapor. If you stand outside on a cold winter morning and breathe out, what do you see? You see your breath, but not for long. It's there for a second and then it's gone. You not only can't see it any longer, but you can't grab it. You can't chase after it. You can't control it. It blows away with the wind. That's what this word means. It means vapor. And what is vapor? Everything. Everything is meaningless. Vanity of vanities. All is vapor. Life is a wild goose chase and there ain't no goose. Jim Gaffigan is a comedian who ponders some of the absurdities of modern life, particularly exercise, because he's not one that's very fond of exercise. And he says, I don't understand the appeal of a lot of the exercise equipment, like the Stairmaster. How do they ever sell one of those things? And then he adopts this very thick New York voice. Hey, you know how people love walking upstairs? Uh, I'm pretty sure they don't like walking upstairs. Well, hear me out. These stairs are different. My New York voice is great, isn't it? Hear me out. These stairs are different. They never end. You never reach the next floor. Well, what's appealing about that? Eventually, you die. Then you don't got to walk upstairs no more. Can I also interest you in a bike that goes nowhere? That's Ecclesiastes. You're walking up stairs that never go anywhere, and then you die. But wait, it gets better. Because you have to work in this life. Not only is everything a vapor, but you have to make your living in this vapor. You have to labor. You have to toil because you need to have food to eat and a roof over your head, and that takes money. But verse 3, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. What gain? What profit? That's the, what the word means. Something that's left over after all of your expenses are paid. That's your profit. It's your surplus. And what Ecclesiastes is saying is there's, there's none. It's a rhetorical question. Because you do your labors, your work, and then the next generation comes and it takes your place. 
There's nothing you've built that lasts because when you die, someone will come in and do the very same thing that you've been doing until they die. Every few months, there's a new mobile game that captures everyone's attention. There's Flappy Birds, Plants and Zombies, Farmville, Clash of Clans. Last year, it was Candy Crush. And I have to admit that I played it yesterday, which is how I came up with this illustration. Sometimes you've got to shut down your brain for a little while. Well, Katie has a friend or an acquaintance on, uh, on Facebook who is a Candy Crush fiend. Most people will play it uh, for maybe 100 levels, 150 levels, and then you realize, okay, this is kind of the same thing over and over, and they'll stop. Well, she got into the 900s, and at which time was the farthest that you could go. Now there's 1,300 levels. Even if she's incredibly good, even if she works really hard and is really fast, that's many 40-hour weeks of toil. But she'd conquered the game, right? She'd won, or so she thought. She was expecting fanfare, fireworks, some congratulatory message from Candy Crush Saga. Congratulations. But instead, the message on the screen said, new levels to come. The game will never end. There's now 1,345 levels, and there's no reward, no prize for finishing, no recognition. You've just given weeks and weeks of your life to a game that doesn't know you exist. Our labor, our work, it isn't just a means to an end, you know, providing for us in this vapor, but it's also oftentimes the way we try to create meaning in the vapor. We get to the end, hopefully, of our work life with fanfare, with recognition, with acclaim, with fireworks, with money in the bank. But Kohelet, the teacher, says everything you create under the sun is meaningless. It's vapor. Okay, one last challenging word, and then we'll try to give you some encouragement from this. And that word is new. Because what he says is, if you think you're going to be the one who does something different, if you think you're going to be the one who breaks the system and does something new, you're wrong because nothing changes. Verse 9, what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And he uses these uh, examples from our natural world. The sun rises and the sun sets and it goes back and it does it again. The rivers flow. If you go out into the well, look at the Willamette, it's flowing right now. It'll be flowing next week. It'll be flowing 100 years from now. But guess what? The Pacific Ocean is never going to get filled because the water turns into vapor and goes back to the, the very beginning of the stream, and it becomes the Willamette, and it goes to the Columbia, and it goes back out to the Pacific over and over. But don't we think, mostly when we're young, that we're going to be different We're going to be the ones that make sure our lives matter, will be remembered, will change the world. And so we think if we work hard enough, we study hard enough, we start a nonprofit, we build a house, then we'll be able to leave a legacy to our children and descendants. But if you drive around Portland right now, you see houses that people built 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago with that same idea. And they're no longer living in that house, and likely their descendants are no longer living in that house. It's not in the family anymore. It's turned into a fourplex or torn down or re- and rebuilt entirely. Even if you have a street named after you, a building or an airport, 
chances are in two or three generations, someone's going to want to rename that airport, that street, that building. So what do we do with this? Three very challenging words, and that's just three. We could go on and on. How do we transition to hopefully find some hope in this passage? Well, first of all, we have to allow Ecclesiastes to show us the world as it really is, not how we want it to be. We allow the teacher to paint us into a corner that we can't get out of on our own. One of the conclusions is that verse 16, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. We have to, when we peel back the layers of life and we see the truth about the world, it actually is going to initially lead to more grief because we're finally being honest about all of the ways that we go through life with pretense and diversion. And it becomes uncomfortable. But we have to allow the teacher to paint us into that corner before we can get the solutions. One commentator said that Ecclesiastes is lesson one and the rest of the Bible is lesson two. You can't rest in the answers of the Bible unless you've despaired of all other solutions. The Bible isn't trying to make us depressed, but to lead us to put hope in something that is lasting. Ecclesiastes is dark grace. In order to be prepared to hope in that which does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that does deceive. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy is really seeped in this sort of dark grace. In many ways, it seems that he wants to give us, through that trilogy, the gift of understanding our own mortality. Arwen, who has given up her elvish immortality to be the mortal Aragorn's queen, or Aragorn's queen, is overcome at his deathbed and pleads, pleads for him to stay longer, and he refuses. And he also refuses to give her significant comfort that he will pass away in her memory and she'll become happy again. He says, now, therefore, I will sleep. I speak no comfort to you, for there is no comfort for such pain within the circles of the world. In sorrow we must go, but not in despair. Behold, we are not bound forever to the circles of the world, and beyond them is more than memory. The long-lived mortal races look to glorious deeds to create a legacy, to create a memory that they will live on in the memory of their world and of their ancestors. But memory fades, Aragorn says. And Arwen, Aragorn, they both want, they both need something new. But verse 9, there's nothing new under the sun. But that doesn't mean the end of the story. You have to look somewhere else. It doesn't mean there's nothing new anywhere. It just means there's nothing new under the sun. There is something new, but you can't look under the sun, under the realm of human endeavor. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, enters the world as a student of the Hebrew Scriptures, probably knowing Ecclesiastes back and forth, and he knows its conclusion that there's nothing new under the sun. And he comes to the religious authorities and says to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world, but I am not. I am not of this world. 
He challenges them because they're teaching people how to live under the sun. He's here to bring news of another world entirely. There's nothing new under the sun, but Jesus comes and offers a new word, a new birth, a new age, a new world. He says in John 6, back to this idea of toil, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures. Everything under the sun, all of our toil done in only human endeavor, spoils, it rots, it fades. But that's not the end of the story because Jesus is giving us another way to work. Work for that which endures, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Without the eyes of faith, Jesus' life looks like vanity. It looks meaningless. He lived in exile. He lived in poverty. He had none of the markers of, of personal success, even in that world. He lived estranged from friends and from some of his family. And then he died at age 33, a gruesome and criminal death. His life was nothing under the sun. But he was not from under the sun. He brings the life of heaven to earth. He breaks in. And his life, his death, his resurrection has eternal meaning, not meaning under the sun. And friends, if you take hold of him, your life can do the same. Your toil cannot be in vain any longer. It won't be. You can work for the food that endures. And you can feed on the food that endures. You can have eternal meaning. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to study Ecclesiastes, I pray that we would not try to sew up things too quickly with a, a happy bow, a ribbon, but that we would sit underneath its teachings, that we would sit underneath Ecclesiastes as it is and not as we want it to be, that we would let it tell the story of the earth and of the world to us so that we can look outside of our world for hope, so that we can look to you Father, I pray that as we continue to worship, as we confess our faith, as we come to the Lord's table, that you would be with us and you would feed us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.